Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is writer, editor, novelist, and screenwriter Michael Idov, whose fortunes as a writer dramatically changed for the better following the publication in 2005 of Bitter Brew, an article he penned for Slate.com about his failed business venture to launch a cafe in New York City. He spoke to me from his home in Berlin. Hey, Michael, thanks for having me over for tea. I appreciate it. (laughs) You're welcome. I first read your work in a now famous Slate piece that you did (laughs) about starting a cafe in New York that didn't work out. That led to a novel which I would say is an expanded version of that piece, of that original well, Expanded piece. and heavily fictionalized, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I would love to hear about that essay and how it led to these other projects and opportunities for you. Right. Well, it's really weird because um, it's one of those life-changing things that like, seems small at the moment, but now that I can sort of like look at my life, it's absolutely like before and after that piece which is crazy because everything else that happened to me after that including moving to russia and becoming an editor-in-chief of gq in russia and then turning that into a film career somehow and then like up to living in berlin now um and doing what i do it's all really very easily and kind of linearly attributable to to that piece so um yeah you never know what you know what can happen um in 2000 Five, my uh, my wife Lily and I uh, decided to experiment, uh, in, you know, small business and very small business, and opened a tiny cafe. It existed for about nine, eight, nine months, and then closed because uh, it was obviously just going to pauperize us and uh, and also just ruin our marriage. Um, you threw in the you threw in the coffee towel exactly. And at the moment, I was sort of a struggling i would say journalist uh, i had my only gig at that point was at pitchfork uh which you know now it's like hey that's pretty good but back then pitchfork was like it was actually an interesting moment for a pitchfork it was on its way for like to becoming you know a real medium but essentially it was still this weird music blog ran by like a dude from chicago you know with, it was a, it was a blog in the corner but yeah, music yeah, guys knew it. Other guys, yeah, not for sure. So much. Yeah, most importantly, it didn't pay. <laughs> it was all volunteer work. So, and I would occasionally write little things for Slate. That was the uh, the apex of my uh, career was uh, Slate. So when uh, we threw in the towel uh, with the cafe, I thought that our experience would make for a funny uh, kind of first person essay for Slate. I pitched it. Wrote it pretty quickly. It's short. It's like 1,200 words. They kept it for a while uh, because it was deemed to be evergreen, (laughs) which is, uh, you know, this kind of every, I think every freelance writer knows this limbo of having like a piece accepted somewhere and never knowing when it's going to run because it's evergreen. Yes. Right. Um, I had a story at um, GQ, um, Gather Dust, for 14 months once. That was pretty brutal. I really needed that movie. And you get paid upon publication. Yes, and with some lag after that as well. So anyway, so yeah, we were completely broke and I was like really counting on even like the, you know, the 500 bucks from that uh, slate piece. But what happened was it came out on December 31st, 2005, like right, like 
on New Year's Eve. So I was convinced that uh, no one would read it. It's just going to, you know, be a completely overlooked in the New Year's hubbub. On January 1st, I, you know, checked my email. Now it's January 1st, 2006. So back then you would still check your email like once a day, you know. <laughs> Instead of every seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, or like just, con- like when are you not checking your email, right? Checking so, mine right checking- now. Exactly. So, yeah, so um, it was possible to be surprised by emails because you would, you know, check it once a day. So I opened my email and there were like literally like a hundred letters from readers uh, it just really struck a chord or a nerve or whatever. It's just a lot of people had this experience of like a disastrous cafe or small business ownership and something about the piece really spoke to them. And among those emails, each and every one, which I insanely appreciated because it was like therapy at the moment, was an email from uh, from the famous director Nora Ephron. Uh, who said uh, that she loved the piece, that she thought it could make for a nice book or even a movie, and she's going to forward the piece to her agent. And then, like, literally two days later, I had a literary agent. And, uh, yeah, no, it's it's one of those things. It's like you tell it, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of... A, it's amazing. A, everyone thinks, like, that's what's going to happen, and I hate... <laughs> I hate feeding everyone's illusions by saying, yes, it does happen. Because it's not like it was a genius piece. It really just landed in the right spot somehow. Because a lot of people who who read Slate apparently also entertained this... Fantasy of uh, owning a mm-hmm. you know a nice little cafe, and, and yours was a very wet blanket. Well, on, yes, on that yes, notion. absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of people over the years uh, have thanked me for uh, talking <laughs> them out of starting a business, and uh, especially I in New York City. Well, the pieces, all of Bleecker yeah. Street is empty at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I've heard. I've heard that there was like a you know. I just to to explain. I've been uh, living outside of the United States for about six years now, but before that, for almost twenty years, I lived in New York. What I've heard was like there was this rash of little stores run by like like Instagram powered stores, right? Like influencers selling like t shirts with their. <laughs> yeah. Famous hashtags or something like that, yeah. right? That's, this is what, real. Is, is it still going it's, on? Well, it's like, remember like, when there were eBay stores? Or, yes, yes, I do. Yeah. People would become uh, sort of third-party agents for listing your stuff on eBay. It was really insane. And, you know, like you said, you don't know what's going to stick and, and what isn't. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. So the piece was incredibly successful at Slate. I think it was one of their most read pieces ever. Which, again, is just surprising because it's not about any of the sort of normal hot topics, yeah. right? It's, it's not very controversial. It's just people kept you discovering it and rediscovering it and uh, using it as this kind of anti... Yeah, like, like a, I guess, a, sort of a demotivator <laughs> in starting their own business. And I think I... I, you know, if I wanted to write a nonfiction book and then like travel some sort of like self-help circuit with it about my failure and what I've learned, I would probably be much wealthier than I am now, but probably much less uh, creatively satisfied. So when, so when, you know, this whole agent thing started, because I had four or five agents contact me after the piece about uh, um, turning it into a book. And, but I, I being, you know, at that point, like a, you know, pretentious little uh, snot uh, who saw it as my opening, because I always wanted to write a novel and no one would have it. So I was like, 
I'm just going to write a novel based on this. And as soon as most of the agents heard that I was going to make this it. fiction, that it was like, click. All right. <laughs> not interested, you know, because everyone thought it would be some sort of like a self-help uh, <laughs> book. And Binky Urban, Nora Ephraim's agent, was the only one who did not like blanch at the mention that I wanted to make this book fiction. She was like, all right, well, you know, I can sell 10 times more if it's nonfiction, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I really want to write a novel. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so, you know, so... I'm so glad you right did. Right. I'm glad you did. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I don't know, it was always fun for me to kind of mix the real and unreal mm-hmm. together. And even in the book, there are like real businesses and real New York streets in the book, but then they're kind of imperceptibly mixed in with with the made-up stuff. For example, the cafe in the book, it actually, it's situated on a, a fictional street on the Lower East Side that's uh-huh. sandwiched between uh, two real ones. It's like a fictional uh, street between uh, between Orchard and Ludlow right. that is not actually there, which is funny. I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but when the book became a bestseller in Russia, uh, which basically pre kind of predetermined the rest of my life uh people thought that the people thought they could use it like sex in the city you know like they could do like ground up tours of the lower set and they were really really you know uh uh, frustrated that they couldn't find the street (laughs) why did it become a bestseller in russia i don't know i honestly don't well i mean i'm being a little did you write the translation did you yes you you did the russian yes so Uh, we this might be an opportunity to explain mm -hmm. that you're from latvia and are fluent in a number of languages. No, just just, <laughs> just the two. Just, your German's okay. No, no? my German's oh, okay. horrible. Right. You, fooled uh, it's, me. It's, you fooled me at the cafe. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, my cafe German is all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that expat cafe lexicon. We have that. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. I got you. All right. But I'm sure the listeners have picked up on my accent. Yeah, I, um, I, I write and speak and think... In English and Russian, sort of more or less kind of uh, equally. Okay, so you translated your own book into Russian. In- Honestly, just for the bragging rights. Right. Just, just I to want- be like, yeah, I, I did. I have this in two languages. What's up? Literally, literally just to be like the guy, the second guy after Nabokov. Yeah, Nabokov publish- Jr. I was yeah, going like yeah, to yeah. To publish something in English and then have uh, have it self-translated into Russian. That was the only driving force because there was no uh, money in it or any kind of perspectives because I really didn't, didn't think that it would happen in, in Russia. In fact, my agent, whom we've mentioned, when I was writing the book, she was like, you know, no one's going to like like this book outside of New York. Like, it's too... Like, it's not even... It's very New York story. It's a very New, really, York it's very New yeah. York-y. Yeah. yeah, like you're writing it too New York-y. And, um, but <laughs> ironically, you know, it did okay in the States. It yeah. got optioned by HBO, which was a whole different experience because uh-huh. they uh, they wrote a pilot based on it, a TV okay. pilot. And uh, a few years later, um, after, you know, nothing happened and yeah. it was safe to do so, they showed me the pilot. And that uh-huh. was one of the most surreal experiences in my life, reading somebody's pilot based on my book, but they, like, they moved the action to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And, and this being HBO, they just added a bunch of sex scenes. Right. And sure. since the main characters are, like, based on, you know, myself and my wife, I was like, whoa! <laughs> 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 my God, this is 
There's some steamy like, stuff here. Right. I feel like there's potential <laughs> to do to do it sort of as a bright lights big city without the drugs, or maybe right. with caffeine as the as right the, as the, the hero main drug in lieu yeah. of cocaine. Yeah. But that's another pilot we could work on. <laughs> okay, so this eventually led to a position. I really I got to hear about this with with my one trip to. St. Petersburg under my belt. You became the editor-in-chief at GQ Russia. Yes, correct. That sounds insane. Like just hearing that position, knowing the state of journalism in Russia, such as I know it, Right. it sounds like that must have been another surreal experience. Well, it wasn't as bad. It was 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was in the Medvedev era before Putin came back and sort of tightened all the screws. But yeah, I was very cognizant of the fact that uh, you know, the the one American who came to Russia to edit a magazine before me uh, ended up shot in 2004, right? <laughs> Paul Klebnikov, uh, who edited Forbes. Thank in, you. In Russia. Yeah. But um, no, it was it was fine at the moment. What happened was, yeah, as I said, the book somehow like struck a chord with the Russian hipsters. And I now understand why, because partly it's because of the sort of uh, limits on free speech and limits on self-expression, because a lot of young cool, intelligent Russian men and women who normally would go into the creative field or politics or something like that, they actually uh, go into sort of small uh, kind of uh, entrepreneurship. Ah. Yeah, so so actually when you, you know, you can't start a magazine, you know, on sort of unfettered, but you can start a coffee, uh, coffee roasters, you know, or, or a barbershop. And it's a specifically kind of like a Moscow and St. Petersburg thing. But I think that I didn't even see that in this very New York story. I was actually writing something that would really resonate with my generation and actually the next generation, guys 10, 15 years younger than me, who were really interested in going into um, into this kind of hipster business. So, yes, yeah, so the book became kind of like a, a, a favorite in that crowd. And uh, I suddenly ended up, uh, you know, a more or less recognizable name in Russia, where I haven't really done anything, you know, in Russian for years and years before that. Uh, My family had moved to the United States in 92. And between 92 and 2010, I didn't really write in Russian, you know, or, or uh, honestly, even follow the news. Uh, all that much, I, you, but did you, know. you maintain a native speaker level of? Yeah, but mostly, yeah. But I mean, look, once the internet happened, it became much easier. You know, I would say that the years in real, like wilderness, Russia-wise, were like ninety-two to ninety-six, ninety-seven, when I just really broke off all connection. And then, obviously, once email happened, it was like, yeah, you just pick up, like you you start you start talking to your friends again. It's not easy to appreciate fully in our day and age, but in ninety-two, when I was leaving, and you know, I was 16. There was this definite feeling that, like, you're saying goodbye to everyone forever. Because, like, when you're, you know, you're not, uh, then you're never going to see your friends again. You're never going to, I mean, okay, maybe you're going to, like, exchange Christmas cards or something. We did not realize that within five years of that moment, we could speak in real time. It's quite something, actually. It's, a, it's, it's another, a big like, shift. It's a yeah. big shift, millennials, that you'll yep. never know about. Yep. We're, uh, oh, yeah, the, yeah, we're the digital immigrants, actually, it's called, right? They're digital So I'm, I'm doubly a digital immigrant. It's <laughs> almost a pun. Anyway, um, the book became big in Russia, and uh, I, I started uh, publishing there, just journalism and kind of little stories of New York life uh, and things like that. And uh, then 
the Russian GQ, uh, they have this like man of the year awards. All of a sudden I was like the writer of the year and they got me in there. It was in 2010. And when their editor decided to leave, they sort of invited me to, you know, like almost as an experiment to come over and try to take over. 2012 was a fascinating year to be in Russia, just to watch all the protests against Putin and the reaction to these protests and the Pussy Riot trial. What do you want your world to look like? What do you want it to be? Do you know that the world has two sides and nobody is free? Did your mama come from Mexico? Papa come from Palestine? Sneaking all through Syria, crossing all the borderlines? Let other people in Listen to your women Stop killing black children and the way the whole thing kind of curdled into this new status quo for Russia that we're, you know, observing now. A lot of what Russia is now is directly attributable to, I think, the reaction to the 2012 protests, because the idea was like, oh, see, if we gave people a little democracy and a little freedom, this is what they do. They immediately like take to the streets. Uh, protesting corruption, then like, why are we even bothering, you know? So um, I'm firmly convinced that the invasion of Ukraine and uh, all the things that, that followed, they are a direct reaction to uh, to what uh, the protesters of 2012 did. And a lot of these protesters were people I knew, because a lot of it was really driven by uh, people from the media, so my colleagues, really. So I do feel kind of privileged to have been there at the time, uh, even though it's ultimately a pretty sad Tale. And again, this real life experience led to another book dressed up for a riot. <laughs> yeah, I do tend to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. No, but I'm saying like this, this, is, life. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is probably a good, a good formula for writers and budding writers out there. The old adage of write what you know, you're able to take that and build it into something larger, sometimes fictionalized. Right. Uh, this one, not yeah, so no, no, so. there was no point fictionalizing it. It, <laughs> it was, was already yeah. crazy enough. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was just kind of, uh, I mean, 40 is a strange, you know, strange age to write a memoir. Although, you know, I've seen memoirs by 20 year olds these days. So I don't know. I tried to keep it to specifically the absurdity of running a fashion forward magazine while, you know, uh, half of my friends are like getting arrested at anti-government rallies. So that was that was the crux of the book. I can honestly say that the book didn't do too well because uh, it I think it tried to do two unrelated things at once. It tried to be like a bree- sort of a breezy condensed memo- memoir and at the same time function as a solid sort of primer on the uh, sociological history of uh, Russia's last decade. And it just you know, are those two contrasting audiences? I, th- I think so. I think so. I I thought I was just being you know very clever here, like by basically kind of sweetening the bill for people, but honestly, people who wanted like a splashy sort of uh, media memoir were disappointed because there's literally like twenty pages about you know running a magazine, and then uh, the people who wanted. Uh, a serious uh, sort of deep dive <laughs> or into... Or put off by the splits. Yeah, I think they were put off by, like, why are we reading about, you know, how he was running with some, like, glamorous people. So commercially speaking, that was definitely uh, um, a misfire. But uh, at the same time, I'm very happy the book exists because, it you know, I got this amazing chance to write all of this down and hopefully, you know, my... Uh, 
potential grandkids would treat it someday. <laughs> so it's great to uh, to be able to just kind of put a little bow on your experience. It's good to chronicle a chronicle yeah, you know, when, yeah, when exactly. you have that opportunity. Right. You write articles, you write books, you do some film work now as well. I'm wondering, what does your creative day look like? <laughs> is there a typical creative day for you? Or is it just a varied patchwork experience right well um unlike my book and journalism stuff uh, my film work is almost entirely done in collaboration with lily my wife so that changes the dynamic tremendously what we do is like when we come up with a story or a um a script idea we just walk around and talk about it constantly for weeks you know and it's a funny process because to the untrained eye it just looks like we're not really doing anything we're just sitting around in cafes and walk around and talk, you know? We just kind of obsessively talk about something. And then when it comes time to actually sit down and write, we don't do the whole, like, George and Ira Gershwin thing of, like, one person at the keys and the other pacing around. Uh, we we actually split up and, uh, and we write uh, sort of little bits and pieces and then kind of edit each other. Because I think it's almost, especially when we're talking about TV, it's almost impossible to conceive of a TV show alone. Because you really need to say everything that comes to your head out loud, if only to hear how stupid it sounds. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to have somebody who can be your sounding board and for, for whom you can be the sounding board. Hence the writer's rooms, you know? It's like no one, unless you're, you know, Aaron Sorkin on like insane amounts of cocaine can write, you know, a season of television alone. Uh, but then sometimes it sounds like you did. <laughs> but. You gotta give me another chance. At what? At meeting the president. You met the president last night? I was wearing a bathrobe. You sat in paint. I was singing and dancing. You were happy. I threw my drink up in the air. Yeah, but not that much of it landed on your head. I looked like an idiot, and it's your fault. How is it my fault? You arranged the meeting over my express wishes. I'm not the one who got you jumping around like Joey Hilton. You have to do something for me. Arrange another introduction? You have to arrange another introduction. Last night you were scared to meet him. And I'm still scared to meet him, but I'll overcome that in order to erase the humiliation that I've brought upon myself and my father. You were just in your own little Euripides play over there, aren't you? Please arrange another introduction. Fine. Really? Yes. Thank you. So, yeah, so it's basically you brainstorm together, you write alone... Uh, if you're lucky enough to have a partner like I do, we you edit each other and you come to some sort of uh, compromise on on everything, and that's what we've been doing. And lately, you know, we've been uh, writing for this show called uh, Deutschland '89. It's uh, the third season of a famous spy series uh, that started with a. First season was called Deutschland 83. It's uh, pretty successful all around the world. It's, the budget uh, increased tremendously, you can see, <laughs> in, in the second season. Oh, in season. the second season yeah. when they go to Africa, yeah. 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 <laughs> Though not enough. Uh, they, you know, they, like, uh, they're, they're pretty sore still, about it. Still that, German yeah. TV. Uh, it's yeah. still German TV, but yeah. it's it's an international hit. It, it's, it does amazingly well in the UK. You know, people mm -hmm. watch it like it's the Game of Thrones in the UK. It's crazy. Ironically, the one country in the world where it's underperforming is, you guessed it, Germany. I think they kind of feel that it's like maybe it's too early or too flippant to use like Stasi and the sort of the Eastern German repressive apparatus as like the basis for what is essentially a pretty light adventure series, you know? <laughs> um, so it, it brought a lot. It's not enough like uh, the, the lives of others. 
I love the lives. Yeah, of me others. too. But it's I'm saying that, that's a very serious tone. Yeah, right? but the th- yeah, but you know that the lives of others came under a great deal of criticism mm-hmm. in Germany because the director whose name, unfortunately, it's, it's Florian von Donner's mark, but there's another name that I forgot, because he's a German aristocrat with like an insanely long name. And that's part of the problem, because when it came out, the reaction here was, what the hell is this, you know, West German uh, uh, fancy boy uh, <laughs> doing uh, writing about East Germany, where he's never lived. Yeah, mm-hmm. he has never lived. So it's it actually came under the same kind of criticism. Uh, so it's funny that you've mentioned it. Anyway, so Lily and I are writing this now as part of a writer's room. So it's us and several more people. It's like in the circus or something. Like you work on your act and you like workshop and, and like cabarets and then suddenly like you take your little, you know, couple act into like the big top when it's like okay so like there's there's horses there and there's the clowns and then like then you do your thing so uh this is kind of how it feels like you've you've created your own little thing but now it has to perform like in the service of a bigger thing uh and it's been kind of a cool experience generally we're obviously very lucky because i mean as uh meet my cat katsuka Yeah, <laughs> we're very lucky because honestly, there's like one good job if you're a screenwriter who writes in English in Berlin, and somehow Louis and I took it. So, I mean, but uh, actually, I'm being flippant because there's more. Uh, I think more and more uh, German producers are um, are fine now working with uh, English language writers because mm-hmm. it's and and it's a huge uh, it's a big shift. It's a big market. It's a big market, and uh, and you know Netflix has come in and is changing the market quite a, a bit. They had you know after Deutschland '83, the next big hit was Dark, this time travel series that was huge on Netflix, and that's another fully German thing that uh, you know became famous for Babylon Berlin is Babylon huge. Berlin Babylon Berlin mm-hmm. starring uh, the female lead from uh, Lily and my uh, Russian series okay. The Optimist uh, she's so, tremendous uh, yeah Severia her. talk about difficult names her name is Severia Januszkaite uh, she's, she's, yeah, I know I know right she's Lithuanian yeah but she's a tremendous actress I, I'm dying to work with her again she, she's got this whole like kind of 40s Hitchcock blonde uh, thing going and uh, I heavily recommend everyone to check out whatever she's in yeah um, very strong uh, a strong presence and an intriguing presence yeah. and in a show with many intriguing presences she still manages yeah. to stand out and she did this song that I really love you know uh, I think it's called Suasha to Staub which has become kind of a like a niche hit it's, it's on the soundtrack to Babylon Berlin and there's a uh, there's a great video for it uh, so she's a good singer as well Zu Asche, zu Staub, dem Licht geraubt, doch noch nicht jetzt. Wunde warten bis zuletzt. Ozean der Zeit, ewiges Gesetz. This sounds lovely being able to, I mean, as a, as a writer who does not work collaboratively, 
I, I feel like historically it's very easy to let yourself down, but it's hard to let other people down. I could imagine really enjoying a collaboration with writing. I get a lot of this, you know, especially now that I said like, okay, running a cafe together, uh, you know, almost like destroyed us as a couple within like half a year. So how the hell are we like writing together for like the last five years? And honestly, it's just, I think that the difference is that this is something we're good at <laughs> and running the cafe wasn't. That's number one. And the second thing is, I think we've been together for long enough before we started doing that, that it's almost kind of a natural outcome of us having been together for like over 15 years you know if we started dating as like me a screenwriter and lily a screenwriter i seriously doubt that it would immediately like lead to a collaboration uh, in fact i think we would just be competitive as hell and you know how it is so yes yeah, so i think i think it really helped that we did other things for years before sort of uh coming together to do this one for younger aspiring writers out there hustling freelancers do you have any advice apart from get a call from nora efron when you, when you write a piece which <laughs> right. unfortunately she is yeah. uh, no longer with us yeah i mean if you can't find your you know nora efron look i mean in a way it's easier now because it's it's all a giant meritocracy and you can just kind of throw your stuff out there and if it's original enough i mean you can you know on the one hand yeah it's just it's such a horrible wall of noise right and it's hard to get through it on the other hand you can get famous off a tweet like it's uh, like you don't even have to write a slate piece like so it's 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 a weird it's a weird world when you just it feels like it's harder than ever to get this kind of an institutional type of chance like to get a call from some grizzled like eminence like get it like you know just this is Graydon Carter or whatever on the phone like you know come work with me like you know it was like that model is all but dead maybe you do the best but, but then on the other hand like the sort of the amount of times you get to play this let this lottery has increased millionfold because you play this lottery every time you put something out like you never know what's going to uh what's going to work and you know if you look at your timeline in any kind of social network it's like half of it is going to be filled with people sharing content by people you are hearing for the first time in your life about. And so, like, every moment someone's getting a break. Like, the breaks themselves no longer mean that, okay, you're going to get, like, uh, you know, a cushy media job for the next 20 years. That's true. That was an aberration. And I think the sooner we forget that this uh, this was like that, the better. Like, honestly, like, even, you know, living in Moscow, there were days where, like, just being you know, a correspondent for some magazine or newspaper in Moscow, like, meant a free apartment, a private driver, and all, the, like, all those insane perks that, if you think about, like, no one really needs, you know, all you need is just working knowledge of, uh, of where you're at, which, ironically, a lot of these correspondents didn't have, like, they literally would go and, like, do interviews through an interpreter. So, yeah, so that whole model, like, the, the cushy media job model is dead, but in the and what you've got instead is this kind of a crazy hustle that could like where you can just strike gold at any moment you just have to keep yourself open to kind of in, to the fact that it can happen in any format that's kind of a crazy thing and increasingly you know, like a, a young person's game for sure we talked about this before the interview like i'm 42 i'm finally starting to feel that okay there are things that i 
probably cannot like I cannot write a script to a computer game like I, I don't know where to you know like some things like that it was like because I used to spend years thinking of myself as like this universal soldier media wise but it's like all right there are things I, I you know I, I can't quite do like I can't you know grab like a GoPro and do like a vice style like video piece I mean maybe I can but it's just I'm not gonna be you can't great compete, at it yeah. Like, yeah exactly so so yeah so like you know, you have to realize, like, okay, these are the things I can do, these are the things I can't. So, things I can do, like, let me just, like, apply myself fully to those. Tremendous advice. <laughs> A little long. <laughs> more. Here's more advice. Be shorter than me. <laughs> more concise. <laughs> um, that's it, though. There's a lot of noise, but there aren't as many gatekeepers. Yes. You, there are, but you can bypass them. You can go straight to the people and see what happens. And I think that this is going to sound weird, but I think our notion, like our idea of what it means to get paid is also different. Like younger people, you know, here's another way I'm like clearly showing my age. I have like a bizarre uh, prejudice against, against crowdfunding. Like I don't like crowdfunding. And I only recently realized that this must be generational because, uh, you know, people younger than me, like they think of nothing of just like, here's my Patreon Venmo me this. It's absolutely fine. It's just a part of like you go through life choosing what projects and what names to support monetarily. And this is actually a pretty cool way of uh, of doing things, uh, both as a creator and as a consumer. I think that the more the more we get into this, the less stigma there will be in the whole notion of like you like my stuff, throw some money my way. And it might work very well actually hmm. might work better than you know the 20,000 a year uh, entry level media jobs where I've spent like the last the first 10 years of uh, my New York life you know <laughs> thank you very much for speaking with me today and I look forward to reading and seeing more from you definitely Thanks, <laughs> thank you <laughs> You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Pussy Riot's Make America Great Again, from a season two episode of the American television show West Wing, and from the song Zu Asche, Zu Staub, featured in the German television show Babylon Berlin. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.